Well, not to get too political on you, this is a sports podcast after all, focusing on the Ontario Hockey League. But as we record on Wednesday, January the 20th, I sit in the boardroom at 570 News Mission Control. Ted Rogers, a photo of him over my left shoulder, a 2008 Memorial Cup jersey from Kitchener over my right shoulder, and Chris Pope's backdrop is a frozen screenshot of Kamala Harris being sworn in as the vice president of the United States. A black woman is the vice president of the United States. This is actually a photo of uh, Barry, my buddy, Barack Obama, fist bumping Kamala Harris, which I think is just the most amazing photo ever. The first uh, African-American president and now the first woman, the first African-American, the first South Asian vice president in the States. Monumentous photo. Uh, what a day, man. It's, uh, it's my birthday today. The Jays are stacked. Trump's out of here. This is a phenomenal 35th birthday. Can we, can we talk really quickly about the Jays being stacked? I've got two issues sure. with this. First okay. issue is... You always have issues with things that are fun. Carry shock. on. On the George Springer front, why is it that we still, especially in the context of what we just talked about, there should be no need to pay a premium to get players to come to Toronto. They should be begging to get out of the United States right now. For the record. I don't think they paid a premium, really. I, heard, well, I saw a lot of people pay, commenting on how they overpaid at 25 mil a year. What I read this morning is that the Mets offer was yeah. in the ballpark of 20 to 21 million, 120 to 125, whereas the Jays are ponying up 150. I just think it's ridiculous. The, the ball doesn't travel differently. The bats aren't heavier. Like nothing is different. You're just playing in Canada and it's a great city. Stop it with this premium. I get, I, I know what you're saying, but I don't think it's a, that's a premium just because you're overpaying. That's what you're willing to offer. I don't think it's, I don't think they're offering him 25 sheets a year to play in Toronto. I think that's what you're paying him. And that's what you want. You have so, to overpay if you want the guy, or you, you have to pay more than the Mets are willing to pay if you want that guy. That's how, like, that's just negotiations, I think. I, but I, do you I, have to pay? five million more per season if they come in at if if the if the offer for the Mets let's put it top end was 125 and the Jays come in at 127.5 is that enough of a premium to lure him to the big bad city of Toronto in the big bad country of Canada stop it no but don't you that's negotiations Mike like the same with any any NHL deal if if uh Sid was offered if Sid or who was a free agent, Taylor Hall, he was the most recent uh, fr- big signing free agent that I can think of. Um, if Buffalo's offering him seven million and Toronto wants him, but Toronto's only offering four, did they overpay to get him to Buffalo, or is that just what they're willing to offer? Yeah, I, I see that aspect of it, but we hear all the time about the lone Canadian it. major league team having to pay this Toronto premium to lure players to like. It's as if we're a completely foreign country. It just, it doesn't make much sense to me. But you have to also think that a lot of players, if you're in the States in the, in the majors, this year's different because they're going to be based out of Florida likely. Um, But this this year's different where other years you're having to, Go through customs every time. You have to so what? Get all, you know, get all this see, that's just it. It's and, so what? Like, well, it's honest to goodness, stuff. 
added stuff. You First of all, at that level, you have, I don't want to worry about it. You have people to do that stuff and going through custom. Like, come on, going through customs, please. There's stop. a lot of added stuff though. You just don't, why, uh, why, why? Well, they, th- th- think about it. Can you just admit that you can't defend this? There should be no premium. Do you, think, do you think there are people? I don't think it's a premium. I think 25 sheets for George Springer is going to look great in a couple of years, personally. Okay. Um, six years? Well, maybe he'll be a little older then. <laughs> you never know. No, no, Popper. <laughs> it's your birthday. You're a little old today. You're the I only am. one that I'm gets to be. I'm very old. I'm very old. Um, I, if you were in the Ontario Hockey League, this is going to ruffle some feathers. Would you want to play in an American city? Well... Except Flint. That that pause no, says see, a lot. Because no, the pause was because at this it's it's almost impossible. It is impossible. I've I never would have had the chance to play in the Ontario Hockey League even when I was of age. Fair. At this point of my life, I can look at the opportunity and having seen every franchise, I would play anywhere. Yeah, and I would well, tell any kid naturally. to play anywhere, right? I made the joke about Flint because obviously they had the problems with ownership when the franchise was first started. I, I see your point. Eric Lindros would be the famous example of he was going to a Toronto area team come heck or high water. So it was the Oshawa generals and nobody else. Yeah. So I, I get it. Players play this card all the time. I just don't think, and I would say the same thing in the Ontario hockey league. You shouldn't have to create a better playing environment just because you're an Erie. than if you're in the Sioux, you get to play in the Ontario hockey league, pack your bags and go where you're drafted. I'm, I completely agree with you. And I, I would have went anywhere. <laughs> um anywhere yeah. but I, I i don't think the jays are paying a premium to get people to come i think that maybe you know 10 years ago i think they were paying a premium to get people to stay but i think that they've shown over time and with this roster that people want to play there like springer going to toronto says a lot Ryu going to Toronto says a lot. You had all the guys in 2015 that came to Toronto. I think it says a lot. I think that is is uh, uh, in the past. Let's say I think I, I don't think they're the Leafs aren't paying a premium to get people to come anymore, um, and I don't think the Jays are either. All right, I, I'll leave you to be on the wrong side of this argument. Fair. You mentioned Flint. We should tip our cap to our colleague Dom Henning. Can we call? him a colleague well, anymore? not anymore yeah Baylor Dahmer I, the Baylor I know I gotta call, he called me actually the other day I gotta call him he uh moving on to a, a new gig I don't whoever's f- taken over that job look out boy, boy do you have big shoes to fill yeah we expect he was amazing the same nameplates to be in place when we show up for games and the little notes that he makes on them and yeah that guy but he did everything, everything. For the yeah. Firebirds organization, like yeah. everything. So everything. from from broadcast to media relations to uh, great guy, it's just a solid guy. I had a nice chat with him, and we wish him the best of luck moving on to uh, collegiate sports. Yeah, I've never seen someone work so hard during a game as a broadcaster. And that, like, I'm sorry, our our gig is pretty cushy. We we complain about certain things, but our gig is super cushy. Dom, on the other hand, on a game day doing all the the media notes and everything getting um our position 
as a, as a traveling broadcaster, getting that area set up properly, um, getting all the media notes ready, getting all the food organized. Plus he's doing pregame interviews with players. Then during the game, he's calling the game on television, but then turning around doing intermission stuff, running back and forth to update stats in the media room. The guy is nuts. And still so, sometimes you'll drag him over to do an intermission with us in yeah. the midst of his own broadcast. That's awesome. He, if he has time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, he's, he's pretty terrific he's, guy. He's great. And uh, all the best to him. His brother, as he always told us, was drafted by the Kitchener Rangers. Kitchener was one of the spots that he loved most in the Ontario Hockey League. So we'll miss him on the road and we'll miss him in Kitchener. Dom promised that he would be still coming to a game or two here or there when he's in Kitchener. He's buying the booze on our first round because he's making the big bucks now. Well, See, yeah. I don't blame him. So there you go. He's going to buy a round for us. When he's in I Kitchener. Love I love Real it. quick. I said two quick things about the Jays, the premium you're wrong. That's fine. The other thing, how many more cheaters do we want to bring over to the team? Are there any other cheaters from the asterisk Houston Astros world series that would like to come to Toronto? Cause apparently we'll pay a premium to buy the cheaters. If they have pitchers. Sure. Okay. I just want to check on that. Yeah. Uh, still Cheater, with- cheaters. Yes. But I will say, Successful since they, ones? Since, yes. And since they stopped <laughs> cheating, Springer still raked. So, And Brantley's still, a professional hitter. He's unbelievable. Still with pro sports, real quick before we get into uh, the Ontario Hockey League and, and this week's episode of OHL Stories. By the way, anybody you want to hear a story about or you know a person you want to learn more about, send us a note, farwellandpope at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope or at Farwell underscore OHL. Always happy to chat about this league and the people who make it so interesting. Uh, Both of our teams on the professional level, Popper, have suffered NFL playoff defeats. I want to feel a little bit better about your loss as a Saints fan. I would. But you lost to Tom Brady, which makes me actually, that's just a double whammy for me, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. What an embarrassment, an absolute embarrassment. I'm not trying to take away from Cleveland. I actually think that might be the new face of the AFC North, quite frankly. And I think they, the Browns had themselves a nice little year. But the, the Pittsburgh Steelers just laid an absolute egg. And I'm sorry, at any level, when you're measured on wins and losses, when you come up that flat in a big game, it's an embarrassment. When you're a professional, when your only job is to go out there and play the game well, oh my goodness. I don't know how you make an excuse for that. Did you watch the game? I stuck in there until the third interception, which was thrown early second quarter. What did you think of the opening play? What it, was going through? You're, 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 I'm picturing you sitting down with a pint and maybe wearing Steelers garb, and you're sitting down to watch the game. You're pumped up. Steelers Browns playoffs sitting on your couch ready watching the pregame all of a sudden kickoff happens you're like okay let's go we can it's the Browns we're gonna pump these guys and then that snap what goes through your mind yeah you you described the situation perfectly that's exactly how I was set up in front of the big screen and I I was stunned what yeah. four seconds two seconds however many seconds 14 into the game and and watching <laughs> Watching Roethlisberger, and I forget who the other player was, but chase it back to the end zone, and then one almost defers to the other, and I'm like, okay, so this is how it's going to be. But even then, you're thinking, it's the Browns. It's a touchdown. You'll find a way, or the Browns will find a way to not win, right? And then it was just one mistake after another mistake, and then, I honestly, early second quarter, 28 nothing. 
I'm done. I, yeah. It's just, there's just, it's not going to happen from here. So I, I turned it off. I felt the same way watching my beloved saints. Um, as soon as they had two uh, red zone entries and they end up with two field goals, I thought you're facing Tom Brady. That is going to burn you. But and a lot then, like the Steelers, three interceptions. So that, yeah, I was going to say a lot like the Steelers. I think they beat themselves. I don't. Did, I don't 100%. know. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was. I, I felt the same way. Everyone's like, "Oh, Brady, Brady." I'm like, Brady was good. Like he, he was average. He was an average quarterback in that game. We've seen Tom Brady dominate games and put his team on his back and just march down the field and win. We've seen that so many times. Um, but I didn't think he was anything. Like I, I, he wasn't Tom Brady to me in that game. It was Drew Brees throwing those interceptions and giving Tampa Bay great field position because they were always in the Saints, uh, Saints end. And when you do that against a guy like Tom Brady, time in and time again, Tom Brady makes you pay for your mistakes every single time. And he says that to his team. He don't make mistakes on offense and we're going to be fine. And the Saints made mistakes on offense. I was watching that game just as a fan and I just mm-hmm. wanted it to be better. I know it yeah. was tied at the half, but yeah. you just got this sense. Like it wasn't much of a game. Quite frankly, uh, the, the saints should have been running away with it by that point, in my opinion. So yeah. it was a bit of a letdown. I don't think I, I know I didn't stick with that till the end either. Two of the greatest quarterbacks of all time and didn't really live up to it. I don't yeah. think either quarterback was g- great, which is too bad because I, th- I, it had all the makings to be a wonderful game, but yeah, it was left a lot to be desired to say the least. And another disappointing home playoff loss for my new Orleans saints. Yeah. It's tough, man. It's tough. And now who knows about the future of Drew Brees? Yeah. I think he'll retire. I, my, well, what if, we, would, would you want to retire on that note? That's the worst part. If you I ask know. me, but if you keep doing that, like, would you rather go like that? Like you're, it's sad. His lot. I, they got the ball back with 14 seconds. I would have liked them to run a play just to give them, a pass like completed because his last pass as a New Orleans Saint in the NFL was an interception. And you don't see a lot of interceptions from Drew Brees throughout his career Um, to go out like that. I'm sure he doesn't want to go out like that, but eventually you have to look at that game and look at the season. He had what 11 fractured ribs, a punctured lung. Like he went through a lot, man. And his whole career has went like he went through a lot throughout his whole career. Um, the shoulder injuries and stuff, San Diego dropping them and all of it. I just think you you eventually have to go out. And I think the time is, it sucks to even say, I never thought I would as such a Drew Brees fan. I, I The time is now. It's too bad. I would hate to see him go out on that note, but it makes some sense. One more thing at the pro level that brings us into our work in the Ontario Hockey League, Jacob Voracek, Philadelphia Flyers sounding off and it made uh, it made hockey night in Canada and it made me think of our podcast this week but he's getting a, re- a question from a reporter and basically says you know you're a weasel and whatever I say you're just going to write what you want anyway so next question and it ju- it brings up this this sometimes fractured relationship between media and athletes and it's it's not always <laughs> it's not always a good one yeah, it, when I saw that, I was like, I'm kind of torn because on one hand, I think it's funny that he said that. But on the other hand, does he need to say it? Like, why? What, what are you doing? Like, you don't, you don't like the reporter's reporting. I, I don't know what that reporter had written about or what, I guess, kind of reporter. A lot of people have columns versus just reporting on the team. So who knows what he 
what he said in years past. I thought I read something about um, him commenting last year how the team should trade uh, Voracek and how he's not the player that he used to be and whatever. So I get it, but that's part of the reporter's job is – I don't want to say to criticize, but to comment on what they're seeing. And if that's what the reporter saw, that's his job to say it. So part of me was like, what are you doing? But then on the other part of me was laughing because you don't see that a lot from professional athletes. My favorite part of the whole thing was uh, former Ottawa 67 and Sarnia Sting, Travis Konechny sitting there and his facial reaction because he didn't see it coming. And he almost spit out his water when uh, Voracek said that. So I thought his reaction was the, the funny part. I'm with you. I don't know what the relationship was. Well, we, I guess we know what the relationship now is between this reporter and, and yeah, specifically. Uh, I don't know what was written or said. I don't know if it's a reporter versus a, a columnist, but it does make me think of, of this league and, and a few things. First of all, Jack Miller, the voice of the Belleville Bulls and early on uh, the voice of the Ontario Hockey League with the old OHL game of the week on Saturdays. He told us some stories about being on a bus with Larry Mavity when Mavity's wife would be back at home listening to the radio because that's how you followed the team on the road and then Mav would make a call on a pay phone because you know way before cell phone time his wife would talk about some of the things that uh, Jack may have said on the broadcast they'd get on the bus Mav would want to know why Jack said something Jack's answered a story to us on the podcast is because well Larry that's because that's what happened yeah. well I know that but why did you have to say it why'd you have to say it <laughs> great story from Jack on that but you know a couple of things come up and and I'm just going to, I'm going to call it right out. Jeff Hicks used to cover the Kitchener Rangers uh, for the newspaper. And two things. First of all, in my opinion, went way offside when he wrote after he was asked not to about Pete DeBoer's wife uh, miscarrying a child. This was, Pete had some time off from the team for obvious reasons. This is a personal family matter. Uh, The reporter was asked to not like to help them keep it that way and protect the privacy. And I don't think that's an offside ask. And for you to go and then write what you wrote offside, this same guy, Jeff Hicks did the same thing to me. He was emailing me one day. This is when I was covering games for Rogers TV and I won't get into all the details, but it just, I knew Jeff as a colleague, right? We'd see each other around the rink. We're covering the same team, obviously. And, and randomly, one day, I, I get this email about something connected to our broadcast, and I thought it was just Jeff sending me an email. He didn't say anything about working on a story, anything like that. And then the information that I shared, and I look, I'll wear this. You call me stupid, foolish, naive, whatever you want. But at no time did he say, I'm working on a story. I'd like you to comment on it. We just emailed. Like, I'd email with anybody else that, you know, if you send me an email one day, Popper, I email you back. We have a little bit of a conversation, whatever. Stuff that I told him in that email exchange ended up in the paper. And it got me in hot water over at Rogers. But more than that, and again, call me a dummy. That's fine. But I sent Jeff a follow-up email and I said, listen, if you wanted me to comment on something, let me know that I'm commenting on it. Don't just take what I've written in an email. It sounded to me like it was a friendly exchange between a couple of colleagues. I, I think that was totally offside of Jeff Hicks. And quite frankly, I, I'm sorry, but I don't miss him on the circuit. I do not. I, that's I it. I'm just I honest with that's you. That's fair. No, I, and I, I appreciate it. And I agree with you. I think that if you want someone's comment on a story, you say, this is for a story. Um, I think a lot of people now, more so than not, exercise caution because of people like that. So the term, this is off the record, gets said a lot 
just because you don't want to get yourself in hot water. Sure. And as opposed, but I think the onus is on the reporter to say, this is on the record. I'm looking for some information. You, we get, we get a lot of stuff that from our time on the road and in rinks where people say, this isn't public. Don't say this on the air, but blah, 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 you know, but shoulder injury, you know? Um, But yeah, that's, I, I can see where Voracek is coming from and where other players and people have um, echoed the same sentiment about other reporters and stuff. We see it with torts all the time and Brooksy in New York, maybe it's, you know, one of the most famous back and forths between a media member and uh, a coach, but um, it's interesting. I just think he could have said that not in a public forum, but on the other hand, if you don't want a player to say that, then handle yourself properly. But uh, if it's just criticism, that's part of the job. I'm sorry. Yeah. And you, you got to have thicker skin than that. The guys on the hot stove had that conversation about it on hockey night in Canada. And then that's really it. Like we in the media have a job to do and, and we have to back up what we're saying. If we're going to be critical, if we're editorializing or writing a column, okay. But you're right. On the other side, those guys have to recognize that, you know, their job is to play the game. The media's job is to report on the game or comment on the game. And look, I, I ran into this on the other side of the ledger as the media member that really pissed off a coach. And it was, you, you, you'll you remember, it was 2017 playoffs, first round, Rangers Owen Sound, first game. The attack drubbed the Rangers 9-1. to one. And while they were up 7-1 in the third period, Ryan McGill trots out his first power play unit, up 7-1 in the third. In fact, the Rangers had just scored their first goal, so it was 7 nothing. Anyway, first power play unit comes out, and I get on my Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL, and I, I make the point. Wow, first power play unit comes out, attack up 7 nothing or 7-1 in the third period. Interesting, or something along those lines. But then in the comments that started coming in to my tweet, one of my responses was, it's a dick move. Like, call it what it is. It's a dick move. Well... The next, the next time I saw Ryan McGill, he wanted nothing, nothing to do with me. And I, look, I went up to him. I said, I get it. Maybe I could have chosen different words. I, you know, I, I do think that sending out your first power play unit up 7-1 in the third period is sending some kind of a message. And what was most interesting to me about that exchange that I had with Ryan McGill is he, he documented times in the past that he felt the Owen Sound attack had been wronged by the Kitchener Rangers. And he's bringing up Steve Spott and Pete DeBoer's names. This was Jay McKee's team. After Spott and DeBoer, there was a, a Troy Smith, a, a Mike Van Ryan, then a Jay McKee. And I'm like, well, I don't understand what the relevant... And, and McGill hadn't... It's not like he was there as the no. coach back in the day of DeBoer and Spot, right? But anyway, the franchise had felt maybe in the past it had been wronged by the Rangers. It was a chance to stick it back a little bit, but... I did apologize for my phrasing. I could have used different language than dick move. But see, I think it says a lot about you too, that if you're going to call something and and someone's upset about it, at least you went face to face and had a conversation with them. We were always told that when I went to the college of sports media in Toronto, that if you're a columnist or if you're, it's easy for a columnist to sit up in the press box and write whatever they want. But when you're, a beat reporter, it's a little different because you have to go into that clubhouse or that dressing room every single day. And I think that's part of it. If you're a columnist and you write a scathing column or you're criticizing a player, it the onus is on you to show up that next day in the dressing room 
put your face to the article, stand by it. A lot of people I find, you know, write stuff and then they don't show up and they don't, they're not around the team. If you're going to, if you're going to say something, stand by it. And I think, I think you handled yourself well when, you know, you call it a dick move. Well, then you went down and saw the dick. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> did you I, see I my knees shaking at the time? No, and yeah. he was, he was, he was good about it, but it was, it was one of the most awkward conversations I've had in my entire time in this league because Ryan McGill was pissed at me. And yeah. I'm like, okay, let's, let's have this out. I, I was uh, doing the TV broadcast during McGill's time and watching him coach that team. He, what an amazing coach. I, I, between the benches, I thought to myself, I would play for this guy and I would want to run through a wall for him. He was amazing. I remember there was one time, I can't remember the player, he came off and McGill marched down and he was he was a mean coach. Like he he had that growl of a of a uh, a way of conveying his message. He just seemed mean and he marched down that bench and he tore a strip off one of his players. The whole bench could hear it. Kitchener's bench could have heard it. He was in his face screaming finger pointing. He marched back down to the center of the bench, came down about 10 seconds later, patted him on the shoulder, said, you're better than that. Let's go. You're up and sent him right back out. And I thought that is perfect coaching. Put you on blast, let you know I'm not happy. And now you're going back out so you can prove me wrong. And I thought that to me, I was like, this guy's going places. And now he's in the National Hockey League. I remember it feels like 100 years ago now, but it would have been the 08 season in Belleville. Uh, watching or broadcasting a game with the Rangers and the Bulls and PK Subban was a Belleville Bull. George Burnett, our buddy from Guelph was the, uh, was the coach of the Bulls at the time. And, and PK had a, uh, let's just say a long shift. Uh, And I'll leave. Yeah. I'm I'm doing the broadcast (laughs) with Don Cameron and, and even Don made a, joke about because he, he must have been out there two minutes like honestly anyway he gets back to the bench and Burnett was right down to his end of the bench in his ear and then grabbed him by the back of the jersey and and pulled him to this you know it would be, would have been the equivalent of being put in the corner when you're in school yeah. right this little seat and it's and then he missed his next time in the rotation so I watched how long is this going to go on for because it's I'm sorry but it's PK Subban whether he's out there for two minutes or not he's still one of your best players three shifts he sat there for three shifts and then he was back out in his regular spot. So, yeah, there's, and that, that's the important thing with coaching. I find that people understand that you can, you can harp on a guy or you can um, penalize a guy, but you have to give him a chance to, um, to go back out and do right. And you mentioned that with George, I had a coach. I remember I, uh, we were, Back and forth, I would say. He, maybe the other goalie was getting like three starts to my one or two starts to my one. Um, but I thought I was better than the other goalie. So I went to my coach and I said, I want to start this game, this upcoming game we had. I want to start against them. Guy I played minor hockey with was the opposing goalie on the other team. And we were always a tandem. Um, so I wanted, you know, it was me versus him. I thought, I'm going to show that I'm better than you. And uh, the coach said, no, the other guy's starting. And I, t- I was so angry. And, uh, we went out, we were, they scored early. We were down one, nothing. Then they scored again. And this is all in like the first period we were down. Like, and after each goal, I just looked up at the coach as a backup. I just looked up at him. You made a mistake. You made a mistake, coach. Three, three, nothing. I look up at him Four nothing. I look up at him. He looks at me and looks down. And I, I, at this point, I, (laughs) I don't know if people know that I, I tend to speak my mind, um, 
And at this point, I yelled at him and I said, are you not going to put me in seriously? And it was four nothing. He goes, get in there. And I went in, it was late first. And uh, we ended up tying the game. And it's late in the third, probably uh, five, five minutes left, six minutes left. And we went up and uh, we had the lead. Puck came down and I covered it. And my, one of my players came over, tapped me on the pads. And I said, hey, when this game's over, get me the game puck. And he goes, man, there's six minutes left. What do you mean? I'm like, I'm not letting in another goal. Get me the game puck. We ended up winning. And he comes over and he's jacked up. He's like, here's the puck, Pope. And I went over and the coach was standing at the bench. And I flipped him the puck and I said, keep this one to remind you. Next time when I say I want to start, I'm starting. <laughs> you need to have that fire under your ass every game, Popper. Yeah. He's Jeez. like, no, you should, you should keep this puck. And I, I go, no, no, you should keep this puck. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Fired up Popper right yeah. there. There's a, there's a way to coach. And I think that when you, when you harp on a player, I think you, you got to give him a shot to uh, redeem himself. And I, I think uh, McGill did that in spades in, uh, in Owen's town. The, uh, I, I covered a handful of coaches in, in Guelph, uh, Sean Camp, uh, tail end of Jeff Jackson, Jeff Brooks, Dave Barr, uh, never had issues in, in any place, Pete DeBoer in Kitchener, and always felt like I must have done something to piss him off. I don't think I ever really did. Uh, Steve Spott and I, who's a previous guest on this podcast, uh, had, had a run-in or two. He was a pretty competitive guy, and I remember one in particular after a 9 nothing loss. Nine, one, nine nothing. I'm pretty sure it was in London. Uh, so he's probably still not feeling great the next morning when we had to do an interview. But anyway, uh, and then all along the way, Mike, Mike Van Ryan, the one time didn't like the uh, upper body injury that got disclosed more specifically. He let yeah. me know it before a game. Anyway, all of this is by way of leading into uh, the guest we're about to hear from on the podcast. Uh, I haven't had a run in with him from his time in the front office to his time behind the bench. So, so far, so good. Maybe I should try to keep it that way. Well, he's such a non-personable person that I feel <laughs> I'm kidding. He's <laughs> extremely accessible. Um, anytime I've reached out of, he's gotten back to me right away. He's uh, at tr- specific trade deadlines. He's told me something's coming down the pike, you know, hold on. No, we're not done kind of thing. Um, big trade coming or, you know, just a minor move. He's been very open with stuff. Um, and he's told me things off the record when maybe he, he didn't have to, but he's specified, this is off the record. Do not say we're getting Logan Stanley. (laughs) Um, but uh, you, you talk about, and obviously we're talking about Mike McKenzie here. Um, this is a guy who, you know, played pro and then came to Kitchener and started off, you know, as, as an assistant coach and then got promoted as an assistant general manager. And now, taking on the the leadership as a general manager and head coach. He's put his time in. Um, he's learned lessons from people that were there before him, uh, former NHLers like Mike Van Ryan, but a guy like Murray Hebert too. Um, but he knows it's his time now, and he's done an exceptional job, in my opinion, as both a head coach um, and a general manager of this club. And you mentioned one of those acquisitions, Logan Stanley making his NHL debut this week in Toronto. I feel bad for the guy not being able to have the family and friends that would have been dying for those tickets. But either way, all six foot seven of them didn't look out of place. No, look out of place. No, he's still big. He's still, he's still quite (laughs) large. Um, And you can still hammer a puck. I, I was quite happy with him because he was a first round pick of that, 
Winnipeg Jets uh, team. And I think a couple of years ago when they had Bufflin and they they had like six really strong defensemen. And I thought, I don't know if he's going to be able to, to cut it with the defenseman they had. And I think skating was a big issue with him um, at that pro level. He needed to, to get a, become a better skater because he had that size and for him to crack the lineup, I was pretty happy for him. Yeah. Looks good on him. And a Waterloo boy to boot. Waterloo. Waterloo. Yes, Waterloo. Not to... Kitchener. They're I put same. Kitchener. Same I, well, place. And to be honest, I thought, is it Waterloo or Kitchener? Waterloo or Kitchener? And then I Googled Logan Stanley and I clicked on hockey DB or Wikipedia or whatever it was. And it said Kitchener because some people just don't get things accurate, I guess. I don't know, but I put There's Kitchener. No difference. It's the yeah. same. Well, is same it? Pla- we're one big happy family, Popper. Yeah. Tell someone from Waterloo that. You've already run down the accomplishments and the career of Mike McKenzie, now the head coach and general manager of the Kitchener Rangers, and he certainly has some OHL stories. Mike McKenzie, head coach and general manager of the Kitchener Rangers, but that's today. The story of how he got here is what this is all about. And Mike, when I think back uh, to your history, I think that hockey must have been in the blood, almost out of the womb, considering the family tree. Uh, was this always a, a, an area that you would have been destined to end up in? Yeah, for sure. You you pretty much hit the nail on the head. It was uh, it was hockey early and often in my house with my dad's job and uh, having a brother um, that played hockey as well. Um, we always say we felt a little bit sorry for my mom. She was she was on an island. Uh, three men in the house and usually the conversation was uh, hockey related or sport related um so yeah right from day one it was it was hockey 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 um playing it watching it uh I was fortunate that you know growing up my dad got to go to a lot of different events whether that be memorial cups or world juniors or stanley cup finals or or just regular nhl games or ohl games and he uh he, he always let me tag along with them um, right from a young age, even when I was uh, you know, five, six, seven years old. And uh, so I got to go to a lot of these events and games and, and that really, you know, when you're young, you, you get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain and you get to see, you know, you know how things operate and meet different people. And, and from then on, you're, you're kind of hooked. And obviously in Canada, everyone growing up plays, most people play the game and, and grow up with the game. And, and we were no different, um, but it was just a, a little bit different being able to go to some of those events and, and really getting a, a peek behind the curtain and, and seeing it at the highest levels too. What are some of the enduring memories from those events you got to experience, particularly young in life, the game, the big games or tournaments or, or the people that you met along the way? Well, the first one that I should speak about is uh I don't remember it because I was too young but it's funny how things come full circle and uh I, I forget exactly how old I was but I was old enough to to still be in a in a car seat and be carted around in a car seat so I must have been under a year old um I think maybe even a month or two old and uh my dad took me with him to the OHL draft and at that time it was still being held as a live draft I I believe it was held at Herb Carnegie Arena or or somewhere in Toronto area Um, like I said I was only a couple months old I don't don't exactly remember this but um, so right from the hop it was 
you know, I was getting to tag along with them and it's just funny how it comes full circle. Now I'm spending my life and year preparing for OHL drafts when, uh, it was only a couple months old. I was going to my first OHL draft, uh, with my dad. So that's the one that sticks out just from what they've told me. But the, the big ones are, I, I think the world juniors is always the one I come back to. Um, I think I ended up going to eight or nine of them throughout the course of my, my childhood. Um, and obviously, you know, the tournament speaks for itself and the passion that Canada has for it and getting to go. And, uh, I got to go to Europe a couple of times, Sweden twice, um, Switzerland once, um, but also getting to go to the ones in Canada and Winnipeg and Saskatoon and just seeing the passion and, and getting to be there for Canada winning gold medals. And it's obviously such a cool tournament. Um, you know, those are the ones that really probably stick out. And then I, I, I look at it and I'm like, wow, that was really special to get to go to those, especially over Christmas holidays. And it's a longer tournament. So you're there for seven or 10 days and uh, it, it's just a fun, fun thing to do. And um, I think the Stanley cup final games probably are up there too. Um, getting to see the cup presented as a kid is always the coolest thing. Uh, even if it's on television, um, that's the pinnacle of, of winning and hockey and, um, to be there to see the cup presented a couple of times in person was, was really cool as a kid. Um, you know, being at the game in Buffalo when Brett Hall had his foot in the crease and scored the goal in triple overtime. Um, you know, that was cool. I was at, I think, game seven when uh, New Jersey won in New Jersey over Anaheim um, back in the day. So um, lots of different cool memories for sure. Um, but those are kind of some of the ones that stick out, you know, going back to my childhood. Did you boo Gary Bettman when he came out to present the cup? <laughs> <laughs> no, I had, to, I had to be really quiet and careful um, back then because I was usually – up in some kind of press box or somewhere with professionals and uh i was just a young kid so i just sat there quietly and watched the game and try not to disrupt anyone i want to jump back to mom for just a second because you mentioned what it must have been like for her and obviously you're more aware of that now than you would have been as a kid but we talk about hockey widows an awful lot and because the game takes a lot of time and energy uh what what role did she have in terms of developing you as a, as a young man and into the game of hockey as well. Yeah. I think anyone will tell you that works in hockey or sports um, and not just in sports and hockey, but there's a lot of jobs that take up a significant portion of time, but hockey seems to be one where whether you're an agent, a player, a coach, a manager, um, a scout uh, in media, that it, it, it's really 24 seven. Once, once the puck drops for training camp and, you don't really get a breather until the end of the year. So it's, uh, it's one of those things that's 24 seven. And, and that was, that was, that's, you know, how it functions now for me, but looking back on it, um, you're just a young kid and I can appreciate it more now that I have two very young kids running around, um, you know, how hard it can be at home sometimes when there's only one of you around and it's not, uh, it's not man on man coverage anymore. It's a uh, it's zone coverage and you're just trying to survive. So um, she was kind of the glue that kept the family together. My dad did travel a lot um, and spent a lot of time at his job, but um, my mom found a way to make it work and make sure my brother and I, um, you know, 
got to everything we needed to get to um, and, and took care of a lot of stuff um, that, you know, is extremely important. You know, hockey's, hockey's fun and sports is fun, but at the end of the day, there's more to life than, than just hockey and sports. And um, she kept a pretty balanced approach, I think, in that sense and making sure that we were doing well at school, um, but also just taking care of all the things that, you know, my dad was, was out working and sometimes too busy. And uh, we were really fortunate to have her in our life growing up. Two of your last three tweets, Mike, uh, kind of cheeky, directed at your family. What's the uh, number one reason you didn't make it to the NHL? Your answer was genetics and you tag your father. Uh, the next one, a claim to fame or an obscure claim to fame. And you're like brother to a low level TV personality, although you didn't tag your brother. But still, it's clear that the family is close and that it matters to you. Tell me about the importance of family in your life. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, I mean, we, we take many jabs at one another. Um, you have to have a pretty thick skin. Um, it's been like that, you know, for, for a long time. It's, uh, and, and you only see probably 1% of it through social media. Um, you know, growing up, it was, it's constant, you know, being, uh, having a brother pretty close to the same age as you and, and uh but no one's really safe in our house and and my dad's a big target as well and and we we like to team up on him uh even still uh to this day so it's uh it's all fun and games but you know deep down it is really important um we are uh you know we always have been a, a tight family um you know a close family and um looking back on it like you said or like i said earlier it's it's one of those things you don't really fully appreciate until maybe you're a parent yourself. You look back on it and uh, you realize how hard it must have been and all the sacrifices your parents make um, that at the time you just think, you know, oh, like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to practice or I'm going to an away tournament or, um, you know, I got to get here, I got to get there um, or all the stresses, you know, I'm sure we caused our parents um, because I'm feeling those stresses now as a parent um that you don't really realize when you're in the moment and you're you're a kid growing up so um I, i'm really thankful uh that i had that support system in place with a really good family great parents that supported me and loved me um and and a brother that you know is you know probably my best my best friend growing up and and still really close to him so um you know i i definitely wouldn't be the person i am without uh, those three people, um, there's no doubt about that. On the hockey side, Mike, you came up through the NCAA and here you are a general manager in the Ontario Hockey League. Do you find that ironic? Yeah, it, a little bit. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a little bit strange. Um, it doesn't happen all that often. I can't really think of too many people um, that have done that uh, currently. Um, but the one person I know that has is Steve Spot, which is, you know, ironic as well that um, Steve was the one that hired me here. And obviously I got to spend one year with him um, before he moved on to pro, pro hockey. But he he went to Colgate and uh, ended up finding his way back to the OHL. And, and I took a similar path, um, you know, playing at St. Lawrence and coming back and working in the OHL. So um, it's definitely unique. Um, 
I like it personally. It gives me a very balanced, unbiased approach. Um, I can look at people and look at kids and look at parents and look them in the eye and tell them that I am unbiased and I've seen both sides of it and, uh, and the proofs in the pudding I, I have, I've done, you know, I've spent time in the NCAA and, um, played there and understand how it functions and operates. And, and now I'm working in the OHL and I, I understand how that league functions and operates. So, um, I think it's definitely a slight advantage. Um, uh, it gives me a, a really balanced approach to things and, um, understanding both sides of it is, uh, is a nice thing to have and be able to tell a family, um, you know, when you're sitting down with them and showing them the benefits or, um, you know, charting out a path for, for their son. I couldn't help but notice in looking at your stats from your time playing NCAA that academic All-American kept popping up. And you mentioned earlier about your mother's role in ensuring that your studies never slipped. Is that kind of a, an homage to mom saying you're still taking uh, the studies seriously when you're competing in the game? Yes, for sure. Um, other side to that, uh, to that one though, um, to be completely honest, uh, I, I I didn't get a full scholarship to go to St. Lawrence. Um, so to give a little bit of a background, um, I got a three for four, it's called, which means um, I had to pay the first year to go to St. Lawrence. And then after that, the next three years were covered. So it wasn't a complete full scholarship. So, and when I say I had to pay for the first year, it wasn't me paying. It was, it was mom and dad paying for the first year. And uh, anyone that knows us, uh, universities, especially private universities knows that it's, uh, it's not cheap, especially with the exchange rate. And, uh, and you're looking at a, uh, a very hefty, uh, tuition. Um, so my dad, I'll always remember it. Uh, <laughs> before I went, he, he had a, a very, uh, honest talk with me and, and told me it's great. You know, he's proud of me that I am getting to go to St. Lawrence and, and play hockey and, you know, have a hockey scholarship. But he reminded me that we are paying for the first year and uh, I'll paraphrase what he said. So, uh, you know, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of make sure you take care of your schooling because if you flunk out, I'm going to kill you. So um, I think it was maybe more of a fear factor, um, especially that first year, like going there, and I had been out of school for two years. Um, I finished high school and then took two years off. I did a part-time class um, at U of T, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really uh, anything big or strenuous. So I'd been out of school for two years. So I was a little bit nervous. I was more nervous about the school part. Um, and I had always done fairly well at school, but going to U.S. university, not really knowing how things would go, um, how you know, to balance hockey and school, how hard would it be? You know, what would the workload be? You know, and having my dad over my shoulder saying, you know, you better, you better not screw this up because we're paying a lot of money for you to go here for the first year. So um, I remember the first semester I read every single page of every book I was assigned. I didn't shortcut anything. Uh, it was, you know, I was, I was dialed in. Um, and then as things went on and got a little bit, you know, more comfortable. I, I learned, um, you know, what I could and couldn't get away with and made sure, um, 
you know, I kept, I kept my head above water, but overall I was a, a pretty good student. I probably could have been a better student, to be honest. Um, I put a really heavy focus on hockey, um, but I was still able to take care of my academics in a way that put me in a really good spot um, with my marks. And, uh, and I graduated and, and, you know, it put me in a good spot on the education side, but going, going there, I was really focused on hockey and I was trying to, to make myself the best hockey player I could at that point. Um, so it was a, a little bit of a juggling act between um, both, but um, at the end of the day, I look back and, and I'm happy that I could accomplish both those and, and do well in both. Your next step in hockey took you into the American Hockey League first pro game and you pick up an assist. So one game, one point. At that point is a young Mike McKenzie thinking, oh, this game is easy. I got it. Um, it, it, was, it was really a thrill to be able to, to play pro hockey. Um, I know there's some guys, and I spent a lot of time around the game too. So this is probably the opposite of what most people would think. But, you know, I never in my head, um, I was probably harder on myself than, than people were on me. And in my head, I never, you know, thought, you know, I'm destined to play pro hockey or I'm, I'm going to make it for sure. Um, I was a guy that kind of had to work for everything I got and really kind of grind it out. Um, so making it to pro hockey, especially the American hockey league was like making, for me, it was like making it to the national hockey league. Um, so to play in that first game, um, that was my kind of, I've made it moment. Um, and like you said, I was fortunate enough to get an assist and I played pretty well, um, you know, in a fourth line role, so limited minutes, but um, it was a super cool moment. Um, my parents were there. I had some friends from St. Lawrence that traveled down, uh, cause it was in Albany and, you know, f only four or five hours from where I was going to school. So, um, it was, it was great that way, but I, I still knew I was pretty realistic that I had a lot of work to do. And there were some areas in my game that I was going to need to improve if I was going to sustain, uh, playing at that level for a long period of time. So, um, it was, you know, it was great and a great moment, but it was also, um, you know, I realized how good that league was and, and that was not even the national hockey league. That was the one step below. So it was a real good kind of eye-opening experience uh, in that sense to be like, Whoa, I, I better, um, I better be ready to go here if I'm going to play in this league next year, full time. You did get that taste of the National Hockey League, at least through a camp, because you're with Carolina Systems. So you go to a Carolina Hurricanes camp. When you're walking into that camp, knowing what you just said about the AHL feeling like your NHL at the time and knowing the work you had to do there, what was your approach in that first opportunity with the camp in the NHL? Yeah, well, I actually just lied to you because I said my made it. Sorry, my headphones are dying here. Um, and uh, so I went to the Traverse City Prospects Tournament, um, played well enough and, and really worked hard to try to get noticed and um, wasn't expecting anything. And at the end of the tournament, they, they invited me to main camp. Um, and so that kind of caught me off guard and I was a little bit surprised because I was only planning to, to be gone for about, you know, five or six days at the Prospect Tournament. So getting to go to the camp and we, we went right from Traverse City right down to Raleigh, North Carolina. 
Um, so I didn't have much time to really think about it, but, but getting there and walking in and seeing guys like Eric Stahl and Cam Ward and like, just, uh, like I said, I was never a guy that was really like deep down, you know, I knew I was going to make it or I was that good where I was like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to get there no matter what it was. So for me, it was really a, a cool moment to, to be at an NHL camp with NHL players in an NHL rink. And, uh, that experience is something I look back on and, and for some guys that played in the NHL or, or made it to the NHL, they, you know, they wouldn't think much of that. But for me, looking back on it, um, you know, I'm so happy I got to say that I, I did that. Um, and, and going to the camp, I just, for me, my mindset was that I had to be the hardest working player at the camp, no matter who it was. So if there was, you know, 60, 70 guys there, um, you know, I was going to stand out and try to be the hardest worker um, on the ice and off the ice um, in every single session. And, uh, you know, I, I did a good job at that. Um, but at the end of the day, I just wasn't talented enough to, to stick there and, and ended up getting sent down. But it was a really, really cool experience. Paul Maurice was the coach at the time. And in your exit interview, he left a lasting impression on you. What did, what did you learn? from Paul Maurice in that exit interview. Yeah, I, I tweeted about that uh, a while ago and it, it was just something that always stuck with me um, was just how, um, you know, he, he, he obviously didn't know who I was coming in. I was just a free agent kind of invite guy. Um, and, and obviously um, he saw how hard I was working and that was his message in, in the, uh, in the meeting was that, you know, what, hard work's a skill and don't take it for granted because there's lots of players out there that uh, just like skating, passing, shooting, some guys are better at it than others. And it's a, it's a natural skill that they have. And uh, the way he explained that to me was, was, was really unique. And I never heard it explained that way before that, um, you know, hard work and work ethic is a skill and it's something you can get better at. It's something you can get worse at. And it's something that some players, you know, are naturally, better at um, than others and other guys have to work a little bit harder. Um, you know, if that makes sense, working harder at working hard, uh, but um, some guys have to, you know, try to, you know, refine that skill, I guess is a better way to put it. So um, it's something that really stuck with me. And even now, you know, I use that with our players sometimes, um, you know, or, or when scouting guys, you know, I, I think about that. So um, it was a really short meeting. Um, with Paul and then he probably doesn't even remember it to be honest because he's probably had a million of them since then and I was just a, a uh, average below average uh, free agent but for me it was always something that stuck with me and I'm uh, I still use it today. A lot, very few people would feel badly for somebody that has had a chance to play pro hockey uh, still makes their living in the game that particularly here in Canada people aspire to that we love the game so much but the reality is the cold reality if we're being brutally honest is that uh, the game itself can be cruel here you are trying to make it to the national hockey league like so many others and you, you don't quite get there at what point Mike do you realize as a player it's just not going to happen for you and how difficult is it to make that call for yourself 
Yeah, it, it's uh, it's a really tough thing. It's uh, I'm sure a lot of guys struggle with uh, that question. Uh, you know, when when is the right time to to move on? When is the right time to give up the game you love? And uh, and it's a really really hard decision. And I think I'll tell you the same thing. Um, and it was a hard decision for me. And I was only 25 years old when I when I made that decision. And I'd only played two years of pro hockey. So you can imagine a guy that played 10, 12, 15 years. Um, and he's, he's 40 years old now looking in, and that's all he's ever known for his whole life. So, um, but no matter who you are, what level you're at, um, it's never an easy choice uh, or decision to quit the game you love. And it, it's something that you define yourself as, which is good and bad sometimes, I think. Um, but growing up, you're a hockey player. And as you get older and, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to call it a job um, for a couple of years and play professionally. But as you get older, you know, that it becomes your job and it's just who you are. And, and I think a lot of guys struggle with, with that, um, you know, looking at it and thinking, you know, what's next for me? Like a, I'm a hockey player and now, you know, I, I'm not going to play hockey. What now? And, and I, I can, uh, I can see how guys can lose their identity, um, a little bit. And, uh, for me, it was a tough decision, um, but it was the right decision. Uh, and looking back on it, it took a lot of courage and a lot of, uh, guts and, and some, um, inner strength, I guess you could say to make that decision at such a young age. Um, because the easy thing to do would have been to, you know, give it one more year, give it one more year, give it one more year. And, you know, I was so close to the national hockey league, but also so far away too. Um, you know, you're playing one level below in the American league, but you look up and there's so many guys in front of you that are better than you. And you're just a fringe American league player. You're not even in that top tier. Um, so, you know, for me, I looked at it and I just thought if I can, make this hard decision now as opposed to in five or six years when I'm 30, 31, 32 years old. And at that point, you know, maybe you have a family, maybe you have a wife and kids and you have to support them. And it's not as easy to, to go make $30,000 a year and, and rent an apartment and, and grind it out working in junior hockey as the third assistant coach or, or wherever, um, moving around and, and different stuff. So all that stuff factored into my decision. It didn't make it any easier. Um, but I didn't want to be that guy that was 31, 32, making no money, no money in my bank account. Um, you know, I had education, which is nice to, to fall back on, but I always knew I wanted to stay in hockey. And I figured if I could, um, get a head start on that, um, that it would, it would help me in the end. So, um, I tried to do that right away and looking back on it, that was the best decision I could have made. Um, and what, I thought what happened did happen. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I was working in hockey as a coach at 25, 26 years old. You know, there's guys my age or guys I played with that kept playing, kept playing, kept playing. And, you know, it still happens today, actually. But even for, I, I really noticed that four or five years after I, I started coaching is, those guys were coming to me saying, Hey, how, how do I get a job in hockey? How do I, how do I get involved? It's so hard to get involved. There's, there's only so many jobs and it's, it's tough to get in. 
and looking back on it, I was like, you know, w- what a great decision that was for me to get involved when I did. And I've got four or five years extra experience on these guys now coming in, um, trying just to get their foot in the door. And, and I'm way ahead of the game. I've learned so much from so many different people. Um, I'm so fortunate to be in Kitchener of all places. Um, so hard decision, absolutely. Toughest decision you'll ever make, yes. But at the end of the day, I look back on it, and I'm really happy that I made that decision at the time. That draws such a great line, Mike, uh, from that starting point to where you are now at the age of 34, general manager, head coach of one of the premier franchises in the entire CHL. But I, I want to make something clear, too, because when, when you come to Kitchener as an assistant coach in 2012 under Steve's spot, uh, one, of, one of your predecessors, or maybe it was somebody that was an assistant after you, either way, called the job as you're starting out, and I'll put it as delicately as I can, the coordinator of crap jobs. Because as an assistant coach, uh, there are other duties as assigned when it comes to making sure meals are there for road trips, accommodations are set, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, like, you, you kind of have to pay your dues and work your way up that ladder to where you're at now. And you talk about getting the head start on that. But in those earliest days, as you come in, uh, what did the job do to you? What did it teach you along the way? It taught me um, a lot of things. Um, the first one was probably that how little I actually knew about hockey. Like, like as a player, you think you know a lot about hockey and you think you have things figured out. You understand, you know, systems and, you know, how the game needs to be played and this and that. Really immersing yourself um, in hockey and behind the curtain, I guess you could say, in a coach's office. Um, you learn so much more about the nuance and and details of the game Um, and just everything from managing the players to systems to, you know, like you said, there's so many things that make a team function, whether it's travel, bus, meals. Um, And and I was lucky to get to learn from um, some guys and, and, I call it doing it the right way um, that taught me how to do it the right way. And guys like guys like Steve spot and Troy Smith and Paul Fixter my first year. Um, I was really lucky um, because they let me do things. Um, you know, a lot of things that weren't obviously pretty, like you said, but um, I had a role and I was able to do a lot of different things and I was involved, but watching them, I got to learn, you know, what it, what it meant to run a successful operation and, and how that looked and taking care of the details. And, you know, it was, it was really um, eye opening to see that. And, and I'm thankful I got to, to see that at such a young age and um, it taught me so much and, and I learned so much every year, but especially the first couple of years when you're just coming into it. So I think that was the biggest thing is um, just getting a sense for how much more there is behind the scenes that you don't see as a player. You just kind of come to the rink and the lineups on the board and um, you don't realize how much video guys are watching to prepare. You don't realize how much, you know, goes into booking that hotel and meal that you just rip down and eat. Uh, how much stress goes into pulling up to a hotel and make, and just praying that the keys are there and you booked it for the right night or the hotel didn't mess up um, or the meals uh, going to be on time. Um, Cause those are all the things you worry about when you're a young guy and you're, and you're booking that stuff. So um, yeah, it's, 
it definitely wasn't always the prettiest stuff to do, but it shapes who you are as a person and as in, and in the business. And I'm happy and thankful that I got to do it because I can look back on it and, and, and really there's no part of, you know, excluding the business side of operations, which I obviously haven't been involved in very much at all. Um, but on the hockey side of operations, um, I've basically, you know, seen or done anything, whether it's driving players to the airport, um, booking hotels, those, um, booking the bus, um, you know, and then the actual hockey stuff, you know, being up top as eye in the sky, being on the bench, you know, running penalty kill, right? Like it's, it's the whole long list of stuff I, I've gotten to do over the course of my time. And it's really, uh, it's nice to have all those experiences and not just be um, like a one track mind and just doing one thing and, and you have a very limited skill set. So um, I'm happy I got to do all that stuff. You used the word a moment ago that we hear quite a bit in hockey today, and that is systems. Uh, is it possible when you consider from your time playing to your time now managing and coaching, uh, do we do we in any way overthink the game? Can we over systems the game of hockey? Oh, 100 percent. That's uh, that's something I'm a huge believer in. And uh, I think um, as a coach, um, and I got firsthand experience of this last year because, I mean, being an assistant coach is obviously different from being a head coach. Um, when, when you're making the final decision on everything, that's when you, you get to see, um, you know, what, you know, your thoughts and the way you, you think and, um, you know, how it works and does it work or do you need to tweak it? Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting topic and something I really, really, really believe in, um, especially after going through it last year um, firsthand is um, coaches, you know, a, a lot of coaches and not, this isn't just in hockey, this isn't any sport, I think. Um, but, you know, my experiences in hockey is that coaches really um, – we want to be in control. And, and when, when you sign up to be a coach and you want to be a coach, you know, that's why you do it. You want to, you want to impact things. You want to help a player get better. You want to help your team win games. You want to implement something that's going to put your team over the top. And I think that's great. And a lot of guys are really good at that. And, and that's a huge part of being a coach, but I think that mindset can also backfire on us coaches as well. And, um, you know, as a coach, you want control, you want control, you want control. But when the puck drops, hockey's a, re hockey's a game of a lot of patterns. Um, and when I say patterns, I mean the same things are going to happen over and over um, many times throughout a game of hockey. Um, a defenseman's going to go back and pick up a puck on a breakout numerous times throughout a game. Um, you know, same thing, a, a forward's going to skate up the ice with the puck um, and cross the blue line a number of times. So there's patterns and hockey's a game of a lot of patterns. Um, and that's why systems are important and making sure your team is on the same page is important, but hockey's also a game of extreme variance as well. And by variance, what I mean is the defenseman may go back for the puck and, you know, he's used to doing that over and over and that's a pattern. But every time he goes back for the puck, something's going to be slightly different. You know, there's going to be a four checker on him hard one time. 
Um, there could be two four checkers on him hard. The four, where's the four checker stick going to be? Um, you know, is his D partner available for him? Is there communication from his D partner? Where's the center? So all these different things create so much variance in the game of hockey that as a coach, you can't control a lot of that stuff. Like you, you just physically can't, you can't, you can't do it. And you can't go out and micromanage the game for guys. And and I think that's a really, really, really dangerous thing as a coach is to try to give rules and set everything. So you feel like as a coach, you're in control and I'm telling them to do this. They have to do this when this happens, but when this happens, you have to do this. And as a player, if you're not thinking subconsciously or almost thinking ahead of when you get the puck and you're thinking about, you're physically thinking about what you're going to do, not reacting to what you're going to do. It's a bit of a dangerous recipe, I think. So, um, I think coaches can be their own worst enemies sometimes and they crave and seek control. And, uh, at some point you got to let the players go and play and, and make subconscious decisions because that's ultimately how they improve and how they read situations and how they're going to improve playing quick and, and making plays at high speeds when there's extreme variance, but also patterns too. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely a big believer in that. Is it that philosophy, Mike, that makes the dual portfolio? Because it's not an easy dual portfolio at all, but of general manager and head coach appealing to you? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think it all ties in for sure. Um, when you talk about that stuff that I just talked about, you know, there's a whole other portion on the other side that, you know, if you're going to play that way, and if that's something you believe in, then you better have the right players to do it too. So if you're going to draft a bunch of guys that, you know, play a different way, then, then you're going to need different players that suit that um, style of play. So I, I think it all goes hand in hand for sure. Um, there's a lot of connection there and, and that is what makes the dual role exciting. I think for me is the fact that, um, you know, I, I forget who said, I think it was Bill Parcells, but he said, if you're going to let me cook the meal, then at least let me shop for the groceries too. Um, and, and it's funny and it's a funny line, but it, it does make a lot of sense. Um, and if there's not a connection between what your style of play is going to be and the way you're going to practice and the way you're going to try to develop players, um, to the types of players that you're going to try to bring in and their attributes and the way they play the game, then it's never fully going to mesh 100% and it might mesh 80 or 90% um, and it might be good enough still to be a really good team or, or win a championship or whatever, but it's never going to be a hundred percent. And that is the, uh, you know, I think that's definitely the intriguing and exciting part about um, being able to do both is on one sense, you're going to be able to bring in those players. Um, and then the other sense, you're going to get to see them thrive not only as a team, but probably individually, um, you know, by coaching them a certain way as well. On the management side, is there an art to making a trade? Uh, I wouldn't say, I don't know if there's an art to making a trade. Uh, I mean, everyone has different ways to do it. I'm sure. Um, you know, for me personally, um, 
you know, it just has to make sense. I, I think, um, you know, for us as a management group, you know, we, we have a really, a pretty specific criteria for what we look for. Um, but every year is different, obviously. Things change, whether you're a younger team that's trying to maybe continue to get younger and uh, recoup some assets um, versus a team that is a little bit older and maybe trying to bring in an older player. So it depends on the situation, but I think at the end of the day, you need to have a criteria for what fits for your team. You need to know, you know, where your, your breaking points are and what you're willing to do and what you're willing not to do. And when, when it comes time to, to put your chips in the middle, you got to know how many chips you're willing to put in the middle and, and make sure that you stick to what you, your plan is. Um, within reason, I think you've got to be able to think on the fly and, and change things and, um, you know, work with other people. But I think deep down, most guys know, uh, you know, how far they're willing to go, what, you know, what's a fair deal, what's not a fair deal. And, you know, I think uh, once you stray away from that stuff, you, you get into a little bit of trouble. And, and for us, you know, we take, a, I call it a three, three pronged approach to acquiring players or, or making trades or, um, you know, even drafting players. It, it's um, number one is, is watching the player and actually watching him and, you know, whether that's on video or in person or a combination of both um, and, and seeing how he plays the game, you know, what does he do? What's his style of play? Um, what are his good attributes? What are his weaknesses? Can we fix his weaknesses? Um, will he be better with us, you know, because we have this as opposed to the other team or does he not fit as well with us? So actually watching and making an, ass an assumption on the actual player is, is number one. Number two for me would be um, any data or, you know, I guess you could call it analytics, but underlying numbers, um, different things that we try to use um, that help us paint a picture of, um, you know, what the player does or doesn't do and also raise any red flags as well with, um, you know, with a certain number or you look at it and think, why, why is that off? Um, you know, why isn't that higher or why is that lower, you know, that it should be. And then we can go back to the video and now we can start looking for different things um, that might lead to that. Or we can take those numbers and data and, we can find the things that are good or bad, and then we can start trying to paint our own picture and, and filling in the blanks that are missing. And when I say fill in the blanks, things like, okay, so did he play with good line mates this year or was he used in limited minutes? You know, um, did he play in the power play um, or are, are all his points power play points or are they five on five points? You know, if he wasn't playing on the power play this year and his five on five points are, are extremely high um, in comparison to other guys in his team, you know, where would he be at if we traded for him and we did use him on the power play? You know, would there be a huge leap in production and confidence there? So trying to fill in all these different blanks or what team did he come from? Do they play a different system than us? And could this play more suited for the way we play as opposed to another team? Um, so kind of fact checking a little bit and, and create, getting those numbers and, and the data to find red flags, to make sure um, we're asking more questions. 
that'd be the second part. And then the third part's just the character, the character stuff and off ice stuff. And, um, you know, calling people, finding out more about the player. Does he work hard? Is he a good person? Will he fit in our locker room? Um, you know, is he a leader? Is he not a leader? All these different things that fall into that character and actual human uh, element. Um, so that would be kind of the three things that we look at when acquiring or drafting or, or bringing in new players to our team. In your first year as general manager, Mike, uh, you put a lot of chips in acquiring Cole Sherwood, Logan Stanley, Giovanni Smith. And, you know, you think about how those acquisitions uh, were, were paying off in, in huge dividends. Cole Sherwood scores the goal in game six of the Western final in overtime to push you to game seven. Logan Stanley gets the goal in the final minute of regulation in game seven to force overtime on the road. Looking back on it from a few years out now, what do you take away from that first year and how, how disappointing was that loss? Well, it was definitely disappointing. There's no doubt about that. It's, you know, it's, it's not often you get a chance to, to go to the finals and, and win a championship. It's, it's so hard in our league to, to win, um, especially in playoffs, that you get that close. You're one goal away. You're one bounce away from uh, moving on, but you're also one bounce away, as we know, from not moving on. So, uh, you know, it's tough. At the time, you feel empty and you feel – you know, like, man, like, it's over. I can't believe it. But um, it was a great experience for our players. And I think we saw that, you know, with guys like our younger guys, Dami Annie and Morales and McHugh and, you know, even like like uh, Joe Gareffa. And, like, those guys played a pretty big impact on that team, even though they weren't the, the, big, the big guys, like you mentioned, some of the big guys. Um, you know, so for them it was huge and – and moving forward into seasons beyond, I think it had a, a really big impact on our team. And I think that's one thing I learned is that the importance of getting into the playoffs and, and getting playoff experience. And like our league turns over so fast that you can really get caught in cycles, whether they're good or bad. And, and if you miss the playoffs one year and you get swept the next year or you miss again, you know, it can, it can really, you know, spiral out of control um, where you've got guys now that are two, three, four years into their OHL career and they've never, they've never been in the playoffs or they've never won a series. And it's just that, that culture of losing starts to, even though it, you know, you may have good coaches or you may have a good staff, it, it manifests itself a little bit. Um, and, and it can go the other way too. Right. Like I said, you know, you have a young group and you go on a run and then they get a taste of it. And then the next year, you know, you're a bit younger and no one really expects you to be as good. But those young guys got so much experience and they got so much confidence and and they come back. And next thing you know, you're good again. And it's like, oh, like um, so it, it works both ways. And I think that's one of the big things I learned, um, you know, going through that. Um, and that is why we aim to consistently, um, even in our years where we're re- you know, retooling or rebuilding or whatever you want to call it. We, we aim to still be a really competitive team and, and try to be in the mix. Um, and, and that's unrealistic to think that every year you're going to go on a run, but um, we want our guys getting experience. We want to be a good, solid team every year, year after year, um, and find something that's sustainable. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, 
we'll see how it goes in the future, but I think we have a lot of good pieces in place right now. On a scale of one to 10, how competitive are you? Uh, <laughs> probably a 10. Um, I don't always show it on the outside. I don't think, um, I'm not someone that shows my emotion, um, you know, openly very much. Um, I, I think as a leader, um, especially leading, you know, you know, teenage kids, um, emotion can be really good if used properly, but it could also be really dangerous as well. Um, you know, so I, we have to be the, the, the calm and cool and collected ones. Um, and you know, that's something that we try to preach as a staff that we need to be in control. So, um, I won't often show it because I'd like to think I'm fairly calculated and I, I try to think a lot in advance of how that emotion or how that outburst is going to affect. Um, and that's probably the deep thinker side of me. Um, so, um, I would say very competitive, but maybe I don't always show it uh, openly. All right. Before we let you go, I didn't prep you for this, but it's not deep. It's not philosophical. We're going to finish with something I call the fast five. So just some random questions we'll throw out there and see what you got. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Not allowed to pick the current uniform and the team that you're working for, but your favorite uni that you got to don at one time. That I got to wear? Like you got to wear. Yeah. St. Mike's buzzers. The, uh, the baby blue and dark blue with the M. Those are those are pretty classic. That's a solid choice. Favorite moment in hockey to date? Probably say making, uh, getting the opportunity to go to the the NHL training camp would be would be high up there for sure. What are you reading right now? Ha! Uh, um, I just finished a book, uh, a couple books about David Goggins. Um, I don't know if you know who that is, but um, he's a uh, he's a former former Navy SEAL and Army Ranger um, turned uh, kind of inspirational speaker slash uh, super athlete, I guess you could call him. And he runs ultra marathons, and um, he's a, he's a really unique guy that has a really unique story. So I guess different. Uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's, it's a book about running and ultra marathons and the different people that run ultra marathons and uh, it's, but it's centered about running. So I've read a lot of books though uh, lately. What are you listening to? Uh, Podcasts mostly. I don't really listen to much music um, to be honest. Um, I listen, I I really like listening to podcasts a lot. Um, Some of them for just, uh, to zoom out a little bit and they're more um, just, you know, fun or funny and other ones are more, you know, for, for my own learning and, and getting better and, and learning different things. So, but I listen to a ton of different podcasts. Mike, thanks for taking the time to do this. We look forward to more conversations down the road. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. 
Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.